the Brazilian Amazon, they have many words for assassin. Pistolero, capanga, jagunço. And in the 1970s and 80s, these gunslingers became as familiar of an archetype in the Amazonian frontier as the train-robbing bandit in the conquest of the American West. They were easy to identify with a standard uniform and their own unique lingo and accents. The gunmen were usually from the region of Mato Grosso do Sul, on the border with Paraguay. That's Gomercindo Rodriguez, a close friend of Chico Mendes, an environmental lawyer who still works in the Chapuri area, Chico's hometown. They had a very typical costume. They wore big hats, those belts with those big buckles. Like rodeo clowns. Gomercindo has had his fair share of run-ins with these gangsters, narrowly escaping his own assassination more than a few times. The Amazon was crawling with them in the mid-70s, haunting street corners, saloons, ranches. Gomercindo was even held at gunpoint on a public bus. And the pistoleros were always a sign of bigger trouble beneath the surface, like termites crawling out of the foundation. Organized crime became more and more prominent as the war for the Amazon ramped up, and paved roads like the Trans-Amazon Highway began snaking their way into the forest. The road is, shall we say, the veins through which the poison of devastation penetrates. These gunmen were drawn to the lawless frontier of the Amazon rainforests as hired muscle for the ranchers and developers that wanted the forest for themselves. Officially, they deny it, but the farmers always used pistoleros, used gunslingers to drive the squatters out of the areas. Now, there were many different criminal groups running around the Amazon during Chico's lifetime, but there was one family in particular that played an important role in his story, the Alves da Silvas. The Alves family was a full-blown criminal organization, offering services from petty intimidation all the way up to assassination, similar to the mob or a Russian crime syndicate, ruling with brutal force available to the highest bidder. They were uneducated and semi-literate, but they had street smarts, shooting first and asking questions later. The Alves family was linked to more than 80 murders throughout Brazil in the 1950s and openly boasted about their violent exploits. Similar to how the rubber trade was a family business that was passed down through the generations, the Alves da Silvas turned their family tree into a notorious criminal enterprise. It began with Sebastião, the proverbial godfather, who had 26 children with three different wives. One of them was Darley Alves da Silva, Sebastião's number one, who had 30 children of his own with his wife and mistresses. And although Darley didn't appear threatening with his bony figure and wispy hair, he was by far the most ruthless of them all. And finally, there was Darcy, the Alves family's trigger man, a youngster with a lot to prove to his father and grandfather. Sebastião, Darley, and Darcy Alves da Silva. Remember those names. In the late 1950s, the Alves family was living in southern Brazil, in a town called Ipanema, outside Rio de Janeiro. 
After murdering two men over a love affair, they fled further south to Paraná. Darley quickly gunned down one of their neighbors, and they had to pull up the anchor yet again. They killed people in Minas Gerais in the early 50s and 60s. Then they migrated to Paraná, killing people in Paraná. They even went to watch Darley's trial. He was actually convicted of a murder there. Because of this murder, they fled to Acre. The Alves family left a trail of death and destruction in their wake all across Brazil, a criminal pedigree that would eventually lead them to Acre in the deepest corner of the Amazon, chasing rumors of criminal impunity in the wild west of Brazil. This brought them to the small town of Chaparri and the doorstep of Chico Mendes. Welcome to Season 2 of Wildfire, a podcast series about fire in our world's natural spaces, hosted by Jim Aikman and myself, Graham Zimmerman. In this season, we're talking about the Amazon rainforest and the raging fires that have been burning in one of our planet's most important ecosystems. In the last episode, Jim and I learned about the fascinating history of the rubber trade in the Amazon and the rural workers who harvested it, the rubber tappers. We heard from historians and modern rubber tappers about the oppressive system that kept them in poverty and the early years of Chico Mendes, who was born into this world of strife. But later, in his teenage years and in his early 20s, Chico found a mentor, a communist rebel, hiding out in the woods that taught him the ways of organized resistance. And then, just when Chico was making some progress, creating new schools, and educating the tappers, his mentor disappeared, and the fires arrived in the forest that he called home. In this episode, number three in a series of six, we'll be learning more about the 1970s, when the conflict between the rubber tappers and the ranchers really escalated. We'll take a look at this conflict and try to understand the motivations of both sides. Chico and the rubber tappers who needed the trees to survive, and the developers who wanted the trees gone, as well as their gunslinging enforcers including the infamous Alves family. A perfect storm was brewing, and it was all converging on Chapari, the small town in the forest that Jim and I were quickly approaching. As we got closer to Chapari to meet with locals and Chico's friends, I'll admit that I was a little nervous. After all, we were showing up with questions about murderers and criminal families, scratching at old wounds and asking tricky questions, knowing that the small town was still embroiled in many of the same conflicts that it was in the 70s and 80s. It was nerve-wracking. In 1970, Chico was still working full-time as a rubber tapper, toiling sleeplessly on his rubber estate to feed his family. But the rubber industry was bleak, having moved well beyond the Amazon to plantations all over the world, which were more productive and less expensive. And after his mentorship with Tavora, 
Chico understood just how difficult the path ahead would be. I'm sure he even wondered at times if he should just keep his mouth shut. And then everything changed. Chico began seeing developers, ranchers, and farmers arriving in Chaparri from the south of Brazil to burn the forest and stake their claim, to destroy the trees that Chico relied on. These ranchers were desperate, fleeing poverty to exploit the promised land of the Amazon. We are rolling. Okay, again, Adriana, thank you so much for having us. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, thank you. That's Adriana Ramos, an environmental lawyer from Brazil who's been fighting against the deforestation from the legal side. She told us about the various vested interests, from the small farm workers to the well-funded agricultural industry. So what happens is that there is an inequality in this struggle because the communities that depend on the forest, they do not have support to keep their activities, and at the same time, the agribusiness sector that wants to increase the deforestation area to produce more, mainly for exportation, is being highly subsidized. So that brought us into a situation that there is a lot of conflicts in the land. I was beginning to understand what a behemoth Chico was up against. Still a young man at the age of 35, he had yet to transform into the power broker that he was at the time of his death. He was a poor public speaker, overcome by his modest nature and unassuming posture, and struggled to unite people behind his cause. And at first, his revolutionary ideas were met with skepticism in Chaparri. Many considered him too radical. Not only that, the tappers were hard to organize, and labor unions hadn't yet arrived in Chaparri. And at this point, Chico was still really only concerned with protecting the rubber tappers, the people in the forest he'd yet to incorporate a broader view of preservation or environmentalism that could recruit broader global support. On top of all of this, he still had to work full-time. It was hard to do it all. Chico's inner demons smoldered as he chain-smoked his way through his 30s, worried about how he would feed his family, let alone save his home from annihilation. Over the next few years, the conflicts in the Amazon went from a simmer to a roaring boil, from 1970 to 1975, Acre and Chaparri were under siege. The amount of deforestation and development in Acre increased exponentially. The number of cattle went from 7,000 to 50,000. 180,000 rubber trees were destroyed, 80,000 Brazil nut trees, and countless other acres of forest were lost. Chico realized that if he didn't do something, all of Acre would burn. And they began to recognize this as a, an existential threat to their livelihoods because rubber tapping depends not only on the rubber trees but the intact forest that protects those trees. That's Dr. Marianne Schmink, the anthropologist that we spoke to in the last episode. It was so dramatic what was happening on the ground. These impoverished migrants who were coming with everything they owned on top of a truck and finding a piece of land somewhere and cutting down the forest so they could grow crops for their families. And then you had ranchers from southern Brazil who were wheeling and dealing in the land offices and, and purchasing pieces of land that these same homesteaders were occupying. So there was a, just a huge land war underway. And seeing all these incredibly dramatic changes from one year to the next in this region, roads that were 
being built and towns springing up, some related to logging, some related to gold mining, some related to ranching and farming. So it was a very dynamic um, and dramatic scenario. As more and more people came to Acre with more and more financial resources, Chico and the rubber tappers were completely marginalized. All of the money being poured into the Amazon, none of it was benefiting the people that actually lived there. It wasn't going to build better infrastructure for the forests or new schools. It was the opposite, intended to bring down whatever foundation was already there, so they could be replaced with big agriculture and more industrial extraction. Not only that, Adriana Ramos told me how she and many other legal authorities believed that the criminal networks, like the Alves family, that held up this whole house of cards, were actually supported by the Brazilian government through a couple degrees of plausible deniability. It was crazy. Um, you mean the, the murders, the perpetrators of yes. this violence have the support of their government? Yes. A government that uh, is empowering the illegal loggers, the illegal gold miners, the illegal ranchers, the land grabbers. You know, we had never had something like that before. The people that goes to the forest to open the areas, to colonize and to take care of that, they always relied on violence to do that. So for them, it's not something quite new. They feel that they are now, uh, I'll say, in power. And then, just as if things couldn't get any worse for Chico, some new faces rolled into Chaparri, the Alves family. The Alves family pulled into Acre in 1974, sinking the roots for their criminal network in Chaparri. They pieced together a ranch where the whole family lived, with their dozens of mistresses, children, cattle, cowboys, and gunslingers. But the ranch was mainly for show. Most of their activities were underground, in the shadows. They began forming alliances with the local police and newspapers, laying the groundwork for a hostile takeover. The stage was set for a showdown in Chaparri. The open plains on the way into Chaparri looked like a fabulous place for cows to live. But the odd stand of trees showed what had once been there, making it a grim sight. It was a place where the rainforest had been truly erased and transformed into another landscape entirely. When talking to Foster Brown, we had discussed what the process of this deforestation and burning looked like. Cutting down can begin at any time of the year. Typically, it's done in the late rainy season. And then the materials pile up and allowed to dry during the first part of the dry season. People use whatever tools are available, whether it's chainsaws or bulldozers, to level the forest, leaving behind piles of debris known as slash. And here, when it gets about uh, August, late August, early September, mid-September, the fire, people put fire to the to the deforested uh, timbers and burn it. The idea is that it's burned close to when the rains begin. Since it's challenging and expensive to move the huge piles of vegetation, these people use gasoline or other fuel and ignite the slash piles where they lay. And this destruction of the forest can happen at a profound scale. There are ranchers who go in and put in teams and cut down large quantities 
and can be uh, deforesting levels at tens of hectares. In some cases, we've had an example of over 100 or more hectares that were burned in a, at, a, at one time. And in other parts of the Amazon, that's very frequent. On its own, this cutting and burning is massively destructive. But when it goes wrong and sparks spread from the slash piles into the burning forest, things start to get a lot worse. The fires, at least in the beginning as they enter into the forest, tend to be ground fires and propagate. They can be only, let's say, uh, as high as your knee in terms of the flames. But they are progressively entering into the forest and uh, damaging regeneration, also drying the leaves that are above it. And those leaves fall down and cover the ground after the fire has gone. And it's possible with the same area to burn two or three times. I didn't believe it at first until I could see it. But it's basically the fire creates its own fuel. No longer is it only the slash pile that is burning. Now the standing forest is ablaze and the broader ecosystem is being destroyed. And it gets worse. The idea is that it's burned close to when the rains begin. And that's now becoming more problematic because uh, what apparently was easier to predict in the past has become less easy to predict now. Just as it is everywhere on the planet, human-driven climate change is disrupting the weather patterns in the Amazon, which is resulting in less predictable seasons and a generally drier forest. At the same time, the use of fire has been increasing, just as the forest is becoming more susceptible to fire. And it's been devastating. Now let's be clear. Fire is not the problem. Fire is only a tool. It's a tool that has been used sustainably for millennia in a wide variety of environments to prepare and cultivate land. But the Portuguese colonists and later the Brazilian government encouraged its use in excess. More slash, more fuel, and subsequently more mistakes. More burning forests. And at the core of this is the fact that people are responsible for this tool and for this destruction, which left me wanting to meet more of these farmers and to try to understand them. And this was on my mind as we pulled into Chaparri. Driving slowly down the quiet, unpaved rural streets, we were on edge, wondering what would happen when we engaged with this community. Would we be received well? Or would we be threatened with the violence so prevalent in this area's history? Our first stop was to find Gomercindo, whose voice you've already heard on this show. We knew from conversations over the phone that he was there in Chaparri presenting to a group of locals from the Rural Workers Union. We arrived during his presentation. It was taking place in a well-built, single-story building in the center of town. We quietly entered and sat in the back. Gomercindo stood at the front, presenting in Portuguese. The audience was a diverse group of people, ranging from young women to old men. No one noticed when we walked in, with the exception of Gomercindo, who nodded as he continued to talk. He was clearly a leader and a well-respected member of this community. As we looked at the folks in front of us, I realized that many of these farmers were likely to be the people cutting down and burning the forest seeing them in that room, they did not appear evil or malicious. In fact, they looked similar to small farm operators in the U.S. 
People who live in sync with the land, even though it may keep them impoverished. People as tough as leather and quiet, with penetrating and perceptive gazes. Practical people who did what they needed to get by in a challenging and always changing world. As this presentation ended, we met with Gomercindo. Once again, we were there with our friend and translator, Lyleson. After a quick greeting, he started explaining in his quiet, patient way what the meeting was about. He introduced us to one of the farmers, an older man named Odehil Monte. Odehil was short in stature and wearing a well-worn baseball cap. And he had the posture of a man who understood the gratification of a hard day's work. He has a, a song of a rabbit tapper. He understands how important the rabbit trap, the, the rabbit trees are here in the in the property. So now he feel, he feels proud that he's protecting the land. He's helping the community to protect all the rabbit trees here. He preserved to cut some trees down. I mean, just the necessary to, to, raise, to raise animals and to grow things. But he also allowed the, the trees up, which is natural. Defender a nossa floresta e nós seguimos o caminho de Chico Mendes, porque Chico Mendes vive. Yeah, he's following and trying to do the same that Chico Mendes used to do. As he grew up with Chico Mendes, he used to work with Chico Mendes, he learned a lot from him. And that's what he's trying to do. It was profound that this man was still inspired by Chico, even 30 years after his death. That said, the fires were still happening. So we asked about the burning currently taking place. Who was doing it? And why? Esse pessoal que faz essas coisas por maldade. Outros precisam fazer para a sua... So, for his sustain, the sustain of his family. Most of the fire here is intentional fire because they know the rules. Ainda, yeah, além disso, eles vendem também o arroz, vendem o milho e para sustento da família. Yeah, yeah, it's to to feed the families. That's why they burn the land to to grow beans, rice, corn. Muitos sim e outros não. Okay. Outros é por maldade. Okay. Some of them, yes, but all the ones they do with the bad intentions, which yeah. is to burn the, the forest. This was a powerful revelation, that some of these people were burning the forest not out of greed, but because it was their only option. But who were these bad actors that Odehill mentioned? Did they include the Alves family? We thanked Odehill cool. and went for a walk with Gomercindo. Gomercindo confirmed that for many of these farmers, burning the forest was their only option. Government regulations and pressure from developers meant that they had no other choice. That many of these farmers were not really bad guys. They were just impoverished people trying to get by. And there were larger forces at play, forcing them to expand their grazing land into the forest in order to make ends meet. And Gomercindo shared that large corporate ranches oftentimes overtake this land forcing the farmers deeper into the forest. These were the real bad actors, and they were the ones clearing tens and sometimes hundreds of acres at a time. Finally, as he headed back to work with the farmers, he shared that these problems were essentially the same things that Mendes had started to see in the 1970s. Looking back, we could see that as Chico and the rubber tappers were starting to take on this encroachment onto their lands, 
they were taking on far more than just a local conflict. In fact, they were taking on a huge problem that reached all the way to the halls of power in Brazil. He was one man taking on a Goliath, and he was putting himself in the path of violence in order to save a place that he loved. As it turned out, Chaparri was a pretty darling little town nestled in the rainforest, and we weren't confronted by any pistoleros or ghosts of Chico's past. I was relieved, but maybe mixed with an ounce of morbid disappointment, that we didn't encounter anything more dramatic. The little town had a lot of pride for its rubber heritage, a reasonably well-sized tourism economy, and a beautiful location surrounded by trees and rivers. And everywhere we looked, there were faded symbols of Chico's legacy. Even the owner of our small hotel had been a good friend of Chico's and turned one of his buildings into a shrine. He told us how Chico helped bring Chaparri its first labor union and was elected president of it in 1975. He helped it grow to 30,000 members who worked to protect the land and their access to it. This union introduced Chico to intellectuals, college students and professors, activists and revolutionaries. He joined the National Council of Rubber Tappers, the Workers' Party, and started the Rubber Tapper Project, an education initiative that sent many rubber tappers to university, opening the door for a whole new generation. But not everyone in Chaparri was a fan of Chico's work. As many allies as he was gaining, he made just as many enemies. And in 1975, those enemies closed ranks. They got organized and formed a unified front against the rubber tappers. By 1976, ranchers owned two-thirds of the state of Acre. The wealthiest 1% of landowners had 43% of the arable land. The government stepped in to create a union for the developers called the Confederation of Agricultural Workers. They were well-funded and pissed off. Those are the people who, in, in various cases, ended up murdering or pressuring or uh, evicting groups, be it rubber tappers, in some cases, small colonists groups, and uh, indigenous groups. The war was on, and Chaparri was ground zero. Chico and the developers had fundamentally opposed perspectives on the forest. For the ranchers, the trees were only standing in the way of profit. But to the rubber tappers, the forest was their home and their livelihood, and they were willing to die for it. The farmers sent the gunslingers to kick out the rubber tappers with guns, knock down the houses. Then they would arrive with a chainsaw, and then deforestation. The devastation of the forest is definitive. Definitiva, e and it's cruel because it won't lead to wealth. It'll lead to misery. And no, that's not a dream, that's a nightmare. During this era, thousands of rubber tappers were killed, and nearly 90 indigenous groups were massacred. The Trans-Amazon Highway became known as the Trans-Misery Highway. It was a bloodbath. Muito sangue vai escorrer. A lot of blood is running through the forest. All of this is stained with the blood of the rubber tappers. 
de índios, de seringueiros, de ribeirinhos. If Acre had been a chessboard, checkmate was imminent. But just in time, Chico finally united the rubber tappers. The rubber tappers defend the forest, not because it's beautiful, large, or has fresh air, the animals. No, it's because the forest is their home. So defending the forest is defending the home. And that translated into organizing a large fight in defense of the forest. With the stakes at an all-time high, Chico and the rubber tappers needed a win. And finally, he found his voice. He developed his signature dogged energy and unwavering determination. The quiet energy that had originally held him back now allowed him to make deep human connections. He became a skilled tactician. And then in 1976, Chico and his closest ally, Wilson Pinheiro, invented the Empache, a peaceful protest inspired by leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi that armed them with their greatest tool against the fires, nonviolence. Translated as standoff or stalemate, the Empache was like a life or death game of chicken. It entailed the rubber tappers going en masse as a group to place themselves in front of the bulldozers. They often had the women and children up front in order to diminish the chance of violence. They would appeal directly to the workers who were driving those tractors and explain to them that this was a land issue and that the land belonged to the rubber tappers and they should desist. They would sing the national anthem. They used religious uh, symbolism as well. So they tried to present themselves as a united local group who was defending their territory from outsiders who were trying to take over in a violent way. The first major empache was in May of 1976, when 60 rubber tappers surrounded an encampment in a siege that lasted three days with no shots fired. Finally, the developers pulled out and the tappers prevailed, and many more empaches followed. Chico won some battles with this new arrow in his quiver, but the war was far from over. His enemies responded with fierce new levels of violence and organized attacks. The ranchers really feel like they've become the victims here. They feel that they were called to come and colonize the region. They set up productive ranches, and now they're being called the villains. That's kind of their discourse. In 1977, the Alves da Silvas had become the most feared criminal family in Acre State. Following the success of the first Empaches, they massacred an entire family of tappers just outside Chaparri. Their financial support continued to grow, and they were only getting more bold. So these were really outlaw ranchers, but they were backed by some of the bigger name families in the ranching business. And then came the most painful blow to Chico, the brutal murder of his friend and compatriot, Wilson Pinheiro. And he was leading attempts to stop the clearing of their forests, and he was murdered. Chico had also been targeted that day, but he went into hiding and narrowly escaped joining Pinheiro in the grave. But the rest of the tappers wanted revenge. 
They responded by murdering a rancher in the street, shooting him 30 or 40 times. Then the police rounded up the tappers and threw them in jail, brutally torturing them. It was a horrible volley of attacks that brought the tension higher than ever. Chaparri was ready to blow. In this episode, we discovered that the problem that Chico is taking on was far larger than just a local conflict. He was starting to see that the development encroaching on his community's forest was connected to a larger web of greed and disregard for the land and those who lived within it. As Chico worked alongside fellow leaders in the tapping community, this threat of violence came to bear as Pinheiro was murdered. Subsequently, part of the tapping community declared that from now on, every killing will be answered with a killing, while the police response showed that they were on the side of the ranchers, and violence was a losing tactic for the tappers. This provided strength for Chico's argument of leaning harder into nonviolence and the use of actions like apaches. And under this banner, Chico responded by rallying even more peaceful soldiers to his cause. By taking on the ranchers, Chico was taking a huge risk and putting himself in the path of a potent blend of violence and greed. No one knew if he would rise to the top or be forgotten. And if he were to rise, would his ascendance be associated with violence or could he maintain his ethics? The podcast Wildfire Season 2 is a production of REI Co-op Studios, Bedrock Filmworks, and Podpeak. The show is written and produced by Jim Aikman and myself, Graham Zimmerman, with additional production support from Chelsea Davis at REI. Editing, sound design, and theme music are by Evan Phillips. 